0: Hi, I'm Gerd Leonhard, futurist in Zurich, Switzerland. Welcome to Gerd Talks, my new bi-weekly video and audio talk show about the future. Greetings, everybody. Like a Swiss watch, we're starting right on time. Uh, The future of democracy. What a topic, right? What a crazy topic to talk about right now. Because it seems like autocrats are winning, destroying the world. I'm really worried about that part of it. And, you know, last year I made a film called The Good Future. And now I'm thinking like, how will I ever think about the good future again? Because, you know, right now this is a very, very worrisome time for us. I'm going to address this with you guys later just to uh, speak quickly about how we're going to do this. So first, there is a presentation which is unavoidable in my case, I suppose. Um, I'll try to keep it as short as possible as usual. And then we're going to take questions from the audience. And we're not going to do that with audio and video because that has proven actually take very long and it's not really that entertaining for people. So we're going to use the chat and comments. And today, for the first time, we're going to try Twitter as well. So if you are on Twitter, we're going to connect to the Twitter feed here. And that is a feed called Gert, uh, Ask Gert. You can see it right here. And on this Twitter feed, you can just use the hashtag Ask and ask any question you want. And I'll see it here and hopefully we'll get to that as well. Okay, and otherwise it's on YouTube and LinkedIn. Please make sure you're logged in so we can see who you are when you're asking questions. Very common problem that we can't identify people. So democracy broken or not? Does it have a future or not? I mean, I lived in America for 17 years and I still have very strong ties there. My son lives there. Um, And I'm wondering, is this an American problem, democracy breaking, or is it a global problem? And I live in Switzerland, which is allegedly one of the most democratic places in the world with our, uh, the way that we use democracy here, that we vote directly for things. I'll talk more about that, what that means and how it all comes together a little bit later. First, I want to say I'm really concerned about the situation in Ukraine and Russia. Um, this is one of the things that I didn't see coming at all in pushing us to the brink of a, a war. Uh, talking about nuclear weapons, I mean, this is a crazy situation. So we're not going to spend much time talking about this today because it's really more about democracy rather than the war. Suffice to say one thing, uh, I, maybe this is the end of what people have called the peace dividend. You know, the time that we had after World War II where everything was becoming peaceful, no big wars, and that we maintained for a long time is this the end of that period. Uh? There's been a, a great uh, piece by Ian Bremmer, uh, the Eurasia guy, uh, on YouTube talking about the peace dividend. You should take a look. I think this really makes me think about a different kind of context coming up. Eh? So first, I want to give some context about what is coming. And you know, when I was researching democracy and freedom, you know, everywhere I was looking, the Statue of Liberty came up, and, and that reminds me of this. You know, freedom, liberty, democracy, that that used to be very strongly associated with America. And that's kind of over now. Right? I mean, now we associate America with partisanship, right? Polarization. It's a very sad moment. Many of you Americans on the stream, you know, we should have a debate about this later, how we can tackle this. But here's a couple of facts about where this is going. The news report here from... A Freedom House. It says basically that authoritarian rulers is challenging democracy. Countries that suffered democratic declines have outnumbered those that have improved. I'm going to show you a couple of stats so you can actually see them, right? And I take myself out here for a second, right? So basically, a shifting international balance: uh, less really free countries, partly free about the same, not free increased, right? In the 15-year period until now has seen the, the number of not free countries reach the highest level. And a lot of people are saying this is a sign of the times. And I wonder where it comes from. And now we have, of course, this autocratic attack to what we're wondering, is this all going to boil down to a really, really bad future? I don't quite think so. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, it, it sounds like a huge challenge. You know, again, looking at the map here, Freedom in the World Index, also from Freedom House in Axios here, A couple of key bullets, right? Turkey uh, and Venezuela and, of course, Saudi Arabia and even India have been considered countries where freedom is declining. And this is a really important trend as we see around the world. What exactly does it mean? And where is it coming from? And how can we stem the tide of allegedly democracy declining. Even more stats on this here, also from Freedom House, a decline across the board. I'm going to publish the slide later as a PDF so you can download it. Just go to futuristgird.com to see that. But, you know, we have in Europe, you know, down here, if you're looking at the circle here, relatively little decline of freedom and democracy. But in Eurasia, which of course includes Russia and our friend Putin, strong decline, and most importantly, the functioning of government seems to be like it's really tanking, right? So the numbers here are quite clear, the statistics from Freedom House. Great article here by Anne Applebaum from the Atlantic magazine. She says the bad guys are winning. And from an American perspective, I can sort of agree with that. Uh, I do, however, think that this is a very kind of alarmist view of looking at things. Probably accurate, but no, that's kind of a hopeless way of looking at things because, uh, yeah, and of course you know what happened the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we could say, uh, sadly, he's not winning, but he's definitely scaring all of us and and destroying the world order as we know it. So uh, more discussion on this later. But here we have an interesting scenario. And In the New York Times says Putin versus democracy, and definitely has a point there. And Human Rights Watch says the future for autocrats is darker than it seems. In other words, autocrats aren't faring well. And I think that's something I've looked at. I think it's an important data point. As autocrats are living in this kind of what I call an ego system, right? Everything around them reports to them. And of course, the ecosystem has been widely spread. I kind of think that uh, it probably gets worse this year in 2022 before it gets better. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's a scary thought, right? And then, of course, after that, maybe this is the final manifestation of this sort of ancient ego system. And a lot of people have talked about this in the next 10 years, bringing all these changes, but I think 2022 is the change year where the ego systems will go on the way out. And of course, the discussion about Ukraine, again, hangs together now with China, and I'll take some questions on that later. But that is my hope, the destruction of this ego system into the ecosystem that we really are in dire need of i mean if we don't collaborate if we don't hyper collaborate in the future the future is going to look not so bright and Pew research actually said at the same time that the other report came out that 74 percent of people in these countries authoritarian ruled countries had no confidence in their autocratic leaders i think that is true for turkey it is true for brazil right of course it's true for america the last president not the next president i hope and many other countries So there is sort of a a light at the end of the tunnel here when we're looking at this. And I really think the deepest challenge of democracy is currently in the US. And this is a functional issue. And I think it's, it's been cooking for a long time, but now it's really heating up. And a lot of worries have come from that as well and a huge debate about what can be done. Just a couple of quotes here from something I read just two days ago from the FT, The Strange Death of American Democracy by Martin Wolf. Brilliant analyst. Look at these numbers, right? Uh, this is a US research shown that 56% of Americans think that democracy is under attack. 37% feel it's being tested. The elections do not reflect the will of the people. 52% of Americans think that, at least according to this research. And here's the worst one, right? A country divided and despondent by a political party. Of course, you know, that is not new for America, but it's very extreme now that people think that they're going the wrong direction if they are Republicans, and the somewhat wrong direction if you're a Democrat, it seems all kind of really a difficult point in time. And of course, January 6th and the whole debate about that, can you just imagine, it doesn't strike one as a country of leading democracy, but yeah, very, very tough challenge. Not down in America here by any means and willing to take questions about this, of course, later. I'm wondering, is the spirit of democracy, the the big American ideal of democracy, is that under siege? Because that was the main thing about America. Freedom, liberty, democracy, progress, future looking. And now, what do we see now? And and I I think this may be fusing us together again now, this war that's happening. But CNN has a great report about this. 72% of Americans say that the US used to be a good model for democracy but it no longer is. That's got to be fixed. And people like Larry Lessig, you may remember him from the Creative Commons. He talks a lot about that in his talks. I would definitely recommend you take a look at what Larry is saying. I think he works at Harvard at, at um, Berkman Center now, and he gives great speeches about this. But he is a guy, uh, the guy who runs Edelman, I think his name is actually Edelman, and he talks about the trust research. right? that has happened the trust report and what is happening is pretty uh... uh discomforting comment that he has so i'm going to bring this guy in. the trust barometer this year shows clearly the uh, decline of democracies and there's not a single one that has um... more than fifty percent of the population believing that they'll be better off in five years and also not a single one that is trusted by its population uh... contrast that to single-party states uh, whether monarchies or um... China, and you see that the world falls into two parts, autocracies and democracies, and democracies are deeply underperforming. Yeah, so I wonder about this, But right? Is that true? Are democracies deeply underperforming? I think that's actually not quite true. It's true for America, tr- clearly, and that is a major issue for the rest of the world, of course. Is it true for Germany? No. Is it true for France? I don't think so. It may be true for Brazil, uh, but that's going to change this year, I'm sure. But this this is a very, very big statement. I don't think autocracies beat democracies, and definitely not in the long run. So I wonder about the trust study and what we can take from it. But you know, a great clipping here from Foreign Affairs, okay, uh, called the democratic the coming democratic revival, and this was from Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State under Obama, I believe, right? And she said that we're going to see actually a fight against authoritarianism. authoritarianism. <laughs> and in many cases, she says, autocrats have been failing to deliver. That is certainly true again for Turkey, for Brazil, for the US, uh, and for many other places. And she says democracy is not a dying cause. In fact, it's poised for a comeback. I think that's something that gives me hope when we think about democracy and where we're going with this and uh, definitely a key point here's another interesting stat from 2020 world population report of course kind of not you know not really recent but this is a recent study i have so the 10 most democratic nations in the world and and you can take a look at this list so what in the world is going on here right the nordic countries ireland canada switzerland New Zealand, right? Kiwi land. what do they have on us, right? I mean, I live in Switzerland, so I'm one of those. I'm very happy about that. This is one of the key points I have in the discussion. What is happening in those countries as opposed to the U.S.? And there no surprise here, the world's most happiest countries, they tend to be kind of the same. Of course, it's kind of a strange thing that if you would ask somebody, whoops, sorry about that, if you would ask somebody about in Finland, if they're the happiest country in the world, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and many of us don't think of Finns as being particularly happy, but of course, the definition of happiness is a big deal, right? So the 10 most democratic sta- nations, what can we learn from them, right? And here's one thing from Switzerland I think we can learn from is trust in government. And the confidence in national government here in Switzerland, uh, throughout the entire pandemic, you know, we had Switzerland coming up with unique and different rules and not like Germany necessarily forcing people into submission, but asking for people's compliance. And the funny thing is, here in Switzerland, there's only seven and a half million people. It's like, I don't know, one third of New York City, right? But still, you know, we, we trust the government. I think this is one of the key issues about democracy, trusting government interesting public officials. Like here in Switzerland, we don't have a prime minister. right? We have seven people who lead the state. Right? And we have a president. That's kind of like the official face of Switzerland. And of course, yes, we're, we're a rich country. And I was born in Germany, so I do know the difference. Right? But very important, as melanie Albright again said, democracy is both fragile and resilient. I think we should not give up too quickly on democracy. And what it can do if it's, if it's applied the right way. And again, like I said earlier, this, this perception of the future, you know, I keep saying in many of my speeches, um, you know, the, as you look at the future, so you act, and as you act, so you become. We should look at the future as, as being hopeful, right? Because this is also the important thing, as I said earlier trust, right? How, do you trust your government? I can say wholeheartedly here in Switzerland, I do. In Germany, I, I think I now do. And what's happening with democracy? I think we need a certain amount of trust in government for that to actually come through. Great example here in Switzerland, the abstimmung, the voting that we do every three months here, a big letter, uh, almost a partial arrives in our mailbox, and we vote on everything from the size of a broad wars to the nuclear disarmament program and banking laws and everything, right? And everybody does it. And how much time does it take? Well, every three or four months, yeah, two or three hours. That's basic democracy, and that works well here, but of course it's also tedious and slow and you know, re- repetitious and rolling back things that were decided before. Jeff Sparrow said the other day, democracy isn't an institution, it's a practice, and it becomes stronger through use. We have to remind ourselves of this. We have to practice democracy. We have to put time and work into democracy. And I think this is one of the key issues as why we're seeing this deflating sense and hopelessness that we can't achieve anything because we're not putting the time in, and that brings me to my favorite topic. Uh, the role of social media and technology. And I, just to say before I dive into this, you know, I don't think that technology is to blame for all the demise of democracy and all the issues that we're having, but social media certainly is a very, very big factor. As we're looking into this future, uh, starting with Facebook and other social media companies, you know, we are seeing essentially the analysis by Samir Saran from ORF um, Foundation. He says basically democracies face a new uh, uh, adversary, technology. The very technology sometimes undermines the functionality of democracy. That's certainly been an accomplishment by Facebook, because that's the public sphere, right? A company of three billion. And what happens there, right, 30%, 40% actually of people around the world get their news from Facebook. But of course, it is a news. It is an algorithm. And this is what happens there, right, regurgitating information. I think this is a great recipe for the demise of democracy if we're just going to have algorithmic media. And this is why I think it's so ridiculous, for example, in the UK, that the BBC is supposed to be unfunded in a few years. What a crazy concept. We need the opposite of that. We need more humans in here. This kind of idea of algorithmic media that primarily Facebook and other social media stands for, that isn't working because life isn't algorithmic. And there's no such thing as an algorithmic truth. I mean, we're humans, right? We're not just data engines. <laughs> so to really get into this algorithmic truth, we need a bit more than this. You know, what I call the sofa larity hanging back and consuming technology and letting AI make the decisions. That's not going to work. I think the rise of this kind of machine world is eroding our society, our humanity, and endangering democracy. And if you know me personally, You know that I'm really open with technology, and I use a lot of technology. I'm kind of a geek in so many ways, and I used to run tech companies in the internet sphere, you know, hundreds of years ago. (laughs) But, you know, we need to find a balance. And I think part of that balance has caused us, because we've lost the balance, to lose track of what democracy is and what it means. Right? Uh, Take fake news. And this has become a phenomenon that is definitely destructive to society, to people, and certainly our democracy, as we're moving into the future where information puts us into a kind of a jail, right? And and also where all information is intermediated, right? So we're using bots for everything now. And where we're basically wearing blinders that technology is putting on us. This is a bad idea. We have to roll back on this, we have to rehumanize technology, because the bottom line is, you know, with artificial intelligence and this kind of engine of algorithms. Right? It's a powerfully bad combination. And it makes a lot of money. So it's powerfully bad, it makes lots of money, but it destroys us. Yeah, you've heard that before from other industries like the oil and gas industry. So what we're seeing right now because of technology is we're seeing this sort of us against them, this polarization and what I call the stupefication, making everything easy and dehumanizing us and bringing everything down to some sort of bizarre algorithm. And I think the bottom line is that machines are binary, computers are binary, but humans are multinary. We live in a world that is not just on or off and yes or no, and we're seeing this right now. now. We have to use our human approach to solving big crises. It's not just yes or no. It's a subject to what we want and how we can communicate. Very important to go further in this direction. And also what I call simulation and addiction and fake worlding, you know, living in a world where we're essentially constructing a world like the metaverse, which I talked about two sessions ago. And the idea of escaping. The world sucks and it's so bad, so I'm gonna escape into virtuality because there I can be whatever I want to be, right? I mean what a stupid concept, right? I mean, and this is what Zuckerberg and other metaverse owners uh, want us to buy into that kind of feudalism concept. So, I mean, it's clear too much of a good thing, technology, can be a very bad thing. And we've gotten the ticket now. We should use technology to support democracy. Not to destroy it, not to create an algorithm that gives us false information and disinformation. And this is, of course, the biggest problem, right? Disinformation and bad news and f- bad information moves five or six times as quickly as good information. That is just not good. And there's been a great book that just I dove into. It just came out a couple of days ago, Richard L. Hazen, called uh, Cheap Speech. Right? And he argues that social media is giving us a way to speak cheaply and to blow our opinions all over the place but being primarily destructive in the process. And this is something we have to attack and we have to really change social media. A great article on on Vox the other day, it's hard to be a moral person and technology is making it harder. To which I would add, it's hard to be democratic and put energy into this. Technology is probably making that harder. And I think we could really change that. On top of that, we have the inequality question which I think is a deep-seated uh, factor that people are pissed off about democracy because it hasn't done them any good. And it's very true, I think, for the US, for the UK, for Brazil, and, and in some cases, people would argue India and other countries of that layer. Looking at, at, at this information here, right, the world citizen under different regimes, right, people living in the what's called electric, electoral autocracies, right, which means that an elected leader, but he's really an autocrat, that has grown vastly. And that is a huge issue, because really what's happening here is this kind of distortion of what democracy could look like. And they're hanging together, if you're looking at the other slide here, at the share of income. 2019, here, that's the uh, the blue box here, right, and the stars. US, UK, France and Germany have exploded in, a, in, a, in top level income, especially the US. And that's, of course, really frustrating for people who are not. I could show you the other part of the equation, which means a lot of people are making less money than before, especially in the pandemic. Right? Are you seeing a connection here too? <laughs> I hope so. I think there's a deep connection between that and the sort of dinosaur behavior that we have in our economy. William Halala, who is also, I think, going to chime in later with a comment, a great writer and futurist, from the Millennium Project and the World Future Society. Uh, he wrote a great article just a couple of days ago in, in Forbes and mag- uh, Fortune magazine, right? And he says that basically what's happening in 2020 in the pandemic, and this is a fact that I've known before billionaires gained $1 trillion. And largely it was Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Right? And they were uh, what they gained was bigger than the GDP of 139 countries, right? In the last couple of decades, business has moved roughly $50 trillion from the working class to the top 1%. That can't be a workable future scenario if we want people to step up and act democratically. So to cap it all off, some ideas for action. And I realize I'm very, very early in this conversation about action. Uh, Clearly, I'm not going to solve the problems of democracy in a a, a webcast here, (laughs) but um, first, This is the first real solution to me. There's too much framing and bullshit by clueless algorithms telling us what we are, where we can go, what it all means. We can certainly do that ourselves. Imagine if your entire life was like a Google map and you would just let it run things. This is where we're going to get to. This will definitely not be democracy if we go this direction. So we have to bring the human back in media, in search, Uh, in uh, official media and public media right? and everything we should bring the human back of course without necessarily making it less efficient but sometimes we have to say well humans are just less efficient right we have to rehumanize we have to push this button a little bit more often and put the money in there as well right? we can't always just say it's about efficiency and optimization the cloud and technology right that's the humanizing in the human back that would be a very good start and you got regulation for example, limiting political micro-targeting, as we've seen on Facebook and other social media, using essentially intrusive data for political ads. I think that is suicidal. That should not be allowed. And I think social media companies need to think about what all, what all of that means. Thankfully, we do have the European Commission, which I really like in the work that they're doing. Yes, I know it's not perfect. It's a tough job. But this is Margareta Vestager, who's a vice president at the European Commission. Check out what she has to say about artificial intelligence and where that's going. We share the same ambition to create a sound and future-proof legal framework for trustworthy artificial intelligence in Europe, so that people can benefit from AI-driven products and services that are safe and that respect European fundamental rights and values. Yeah, respecting European fundamental rights, right? That's which um, uh, her colleague, uh, 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 Mrs. van der Leyen, she says, we should not have those decisions made in Silicon Valley without any human supervision, just because they can, right? I think that's an obvious scenario that we have to look at and fix as to how much sovereignty we really have on this, right? And here's the age-old problem. I think democracy is also crumbling because we focus too much on profit and growth. And that, again, is also technology, right? And making things easier and work better, right? This is all that matters. Jobs and growth and profit and more stock market. As we've seen in Facebook, of course, their stock is down. Thankfully, sell as soon as you can, right? A new paradigm that I think needs to come in. People, planet, purpose and prosperity. This is the paradigm of my work. Riffing off Elkington's uh, people plan the profit paradigm. I think this is going to become the main paradigm when we look at the future. And also the paradigm of investing in democracy again. I mean, if you want to put this in there, people plan the purpose, prosperity, democracy, right? That doesn't rhyme with a piece, but uh, <laughs> I think that would be a good choice to have. And as we're going to this future, we're building a new system, right? What's called the stakeholder economy in a new kind of capitalism. And that's budding everywhere. We need to accelerate this because it will also accelerate democracy. And I think this comes together as you know the, the fixing project of, uh, of capitalism moving to sort of a, a new capitalism that is actually fit for the future. A great American Cherokee saying, right, "The wolf you feed is the wolf that wins." Right? If we feed democracy in the right way, it will win if we don't feed it in the right way, right? If we don't protect what makes us human, that's the wolf that will win. Very smart saying and I need to put a lot more money into feeding democracy, which of course also includes uh, education and work and training. So I made a film about this called The Good Future. We're going to play a little teaser at the end. And I think that democracy to me is sort of synonymous with the good future. Can't be any good future without democracy in my view. And, and so this is really now table stakes, especially now at this very moment here in Europe. And I, I really do believe that we need to get together and solve that problem very, very quickly and I'm looking forward for that to happen in the next couple of months. So that was my uh, uh, fifty minutes. I think it was a lot more than that, but I just couldn't help it. You know, all the stuff I had prepared. Now, I'd love to talk to you about uh, what you think about democracy and which way we're going and whether you think a good future is plausible at this very moment, let's be open and hearty and ask me the tough questions. So let's bring in some questions, please. Um, if you haven't asked questions, you can do that on Twitter. Uh, actually, do we have here? No, we don't have anything on Twitter yet. Or oh, we do actually, yes. Uh, I'm gonna go back to this in a minute. But uh, we have a question right here from uh, Len Rosen. Thanks Len on LinkedIn. There's a correlation between a decline in the democratic norms With the rise of existential challenges like climate change absolutely we need to rethink the way that we organize our politics i can't agree with you more on that one len it's clearly totally frustrating for people for me also i mean i started a thing called the green futurist 10 years ago nobody wanted to talk to me about it and now it's like yes it's here but people are so frustrated because we are not getting anywhere by talking sense into people it's like look at the cop 26 which, was it 26? Yeah, I think it was 20, or 26, Glasgow, right? Uh, which, for a lot of people, was deeply frustrating, but we did move the needle a little bit. So I totally agree with you. Climate change and all these specials, that's really pulling up the heat on democracy. And it's really all together in a holistic way. I think, ultimately, we have to think about that in a, in a way together. Thanks for the question, Lynn. Let's have the next one. Again, you can comment on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Um, and you can bring in your stuff here as we're talking. Is there more to come? Yeah. Claudia Rondon, thanks. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts in regards to democracy versus data and private companies that hold data. Back in the day, intelligentsia had a different meaning. It belonged to the government. What about now? Is that still true? Yeah, no. I, I think we have a huge problem here with data in that we've basically focused on making it work. So whatever works and technology is deemed OK. And now it turns out it's actually really working a lot better than we ever thought. And for example, the thing about Facebook is not that it's criminal but, but it's, and it's doing bad things, which it does, but it's, the problem is that it's using what it's set out to do and actually achieving it. <laughs> this is the bad thing about Facebook, right, is that, that it goes out to use all the data and now it has a better engine than the NSA, uh, in fact, Working with the NSA, as we know, years ago from Snowden's relevations on this, we have to fix this issue, and data protection is going to be huge. Imagine when my DNA goes in the cloud, which it has to to solve cancer and other diseases that are based on genomic engineering. And imagine when we're all hyperconnected in the cloud. In 10 years, 9 billion people working remotely, working in virtuality. So data and data protection is absolutely crucial, and, and so is the privacy that comes with it. Absolutely. And I can't agree with you more on this one. Uh, also a reason why their faith in democracy has dwindled, because we all kind of feel like, oh, I we mean, can't do anything about it. It's like, you know, do you have an alternative to using Google? No, it doesn't exist. Well, DuckDuckGo or You.com, which I recently discovered, are coming into fruition now. But do we have an alternative for Facebook? I stopped using Facebook. I lost 25% of my traffic on my websites. And so that is definitely a very bad sign, and uh, I think we need to also tackle this. It all flows together into a giant dystopia generator. And if you're talking to millennials and kids between, say, you know, 15 and 35, right, you're hearing a lot of despondency. The future is not going to be good, especially now, of course. Right? And I don't agree. And I, Why can't we push that issue forward of designing the future that we want and being more proactive, having more faith in humanity? I know, tough time to talk about faith in humanity, right? But we're not talking just about one humans or you know, the proportion of badness there. Anyway, Claudia, thanks for the question. And um, let's move on to the next one. We do have some tweets here as well. I want to show you uh, jock codes. It may be inherent in the structure of large nation-states. Do we still need concentrated intermediation between people in a hyperkinetic world? Make them easily captured? You know, that's a very good question. I I tend to think that nation-states, even large ones, are morphing into more group states. You know, this is my theory of the United States, of Europe, which I think is happening right in in front of us. Especially now in this war, we're pulling together And, of course, NATO is pulling together, but, you know, we have to see what comes out of it. But I think nation states are not really a great ticket for the future. I believe in group states like like Europe and like African states, and and that's already all in in flow. In 10 years, I think we'll have a United States of Europe, and it's, uh, it's pretty clear that is going to be on our agenda, even though... It's hard to imagine. Let's go over to Twitter here for a second, okay? Just to take a look here. Will Scholl, uh, listening to, well, well, that's not a question. Thanks for the kind comment. But yeah, I just want to show that my great Twitter feed is actually working. <laughs> so let's go another live question from here. Um, while we're fishing this out, in the meantime, of course, um, Jack, no, we don't want Jack again. Jack was already there. Thank you. Let's bring in somebody else. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let's see. Is William Halal here? We would love to have him in here. Chris Perry, thanks for your kind comments, Chris, on YouTube, by the way. I appreciate you being here. Kindness has risen its head during the pandemic. Also, many people and companies are expressing kindness. Well, is there still hope? Of course. I mean, I believe that humans aren't evil by nature. Winston Churchill once said about Americans, you can always trust Americans to do the right thing after they tried everything else. And I think that's very true for humans. You can trust us to do the right thing, but we take a lot of different attempts and circumvent, you know, go on there quickly. And I think we're learning what that means right now. I believe that people are kind in principle. Read the book Humankind by Rutger Bregman to learn more about this. And the view of humans being evil and everybody like having a potential Putin in, in himself uh, is dystopian. And I think you know, we have to deal with unkind people. That is a reality of our lives. And we can't ignore that. So my view is that I think uh, who said it? Grumsky, Antoni Grumsky, the great researcher and writer, you know, he said basically we have to have a skepticism of the mind and optimism of the heart when we look at future, at the future and at humans. We have to be skeptical about things, but we should be an optimist at heart. I think that is really the solution to understanding why there is hope. And I believe this year will be actually turning out very hopeful towards the end of the year when we can finally turn around this bizarre situation that is a total sort of trigger point in so many ways. And And I, I wish you all well and stomach in, in, uh, in, in stomping, stomping this whole process until that is done. Let's have another question. Okay, and William, are you there? If William Halal is here, yes, there. Okay, so yeah, please, bring on the next comment by, by William Halal. And check out his article again on Fortune magazine, okay? Bureaucracy, yeah, huge problem for entrepreneurship and government markets. And the second one is gridlock, okay? I totally get it, and I'm with you on this one. I don't feel the gridlock is quite the same in Europe. And I think the gridlock can be avoided if we are a little bit more open to looking at the world and coming up with solutions that encompass all of us. And fortunately, I do see some very positive development, for example, in Germany, where we had a bit of that gridlock and also here in Switzerland, where we had a lot of anti-vaccine people gridlocking with the government. But it's, it can't be resolved with conversation. right? With paying attention to each other, and I think that 's a sort of European skill, as we you know uh, we have been sort of developing this humanist view of the future, and of course our social capitalism. it all goes hand in hand. you know Why are the Nordic countries the happiest and the most achieved in democracy? Well, I think because they have solved these issues or not solved, but tackled them better right? and interesting i I would love to hear somebody from the Nordics, you know if somebody is there to comment on whether that is actually true or not so and in the meantime I wanted to tell you quickly about my book of course we're going to have a little thing at the end where we're giving away the coupon for a free ebook for technology versus humanity the book is five years old but it talks very much about democracy so please hang on until the end to to get the coupon Let's bring the question back in here from robert so we're now canceling the russians should we cancel and freeze all sociopathic governments and demand citizen assemblies to have a seat on the table. You know, I think that's a very difficult question. You know, we are, uh, we are, we are sanctioning and cancelling doing business with extreme parties like we should have and we did do with uh, Nazi World War II. And that is a long story, Now going back to, uh, uh, you know, beyond the time that most of us can remember, right? But basically, this is the right thing to do. It's, it's exerting huge pressure. I think the solution for the conflict potentially, in my view, may lie with China. And Xi Jinping uh, is under a lot of pressure to address this now. And I I see a ticket for him forming there. And, yeah, it's, it's it's really, really discouraging and disconcerting to see that it had to get to that point to actually unlock the energy around what is happening about the society that we are facing, that we always knew was there right um well, we can't cancel or freeze everybody that doesn't agree with us you know that, that's a kind of a dangerous uh, assumption, but I think generally speaking there's something to be said for sanctions um and also for for coming together against a uh, an obvious uh, and totally respectless enemy that is destroying another country in, in a willful attack that is completely unjustifiable so that is really my answer on this question, let's move to another one and see if we have other interesting questions and in which way we're going to address that future here. So Laurent Marbacher, how would you assess the behaviors and politics of democracies around Covid? How has this affected trust? Well, you know, there, there can't be a black or white answer on this. I think here in Switzerland it has. The Covid response was measured and was carefully tuned with everybody. People trusted the government. In Germany, it was kind of a, a tug of war between the states and politicians. And, and yeah, of course, you could say the performance there was kind of OK, right? but not amazing. The losers, really, are the autocrats, because their response was just detrimental. Again, Brazil, right? Turkey, Hungary, and of course, the US, until the other government took over, and even then. Right? So and we can clearly see that, of course, you can say autocrats are quicker in responding. That doesn't mean we should all have an autocratic government, right? And autocrats can do good things when they decide quickly, like they have, of course, in Saudi Arabia uh, in the COVID crisis, relatedly so, of course, and, of course, in, um, in China. But is that an argument for having an autocratic society? I don't, I don't think it is, and uh, it's not clear to have winners or losers. I think the winners, by and large, are obvious when we're looking at the performance of, say, New Zealand. Until the end, at least, and what happened there in the, in the government strategy, and of course all the all the companies, uh, all the sorry all the companies governed by women, right? Here's a sort of a gallery of of them. I really think that the future is female, and diverse, and young, and we're just waiting for a female to take over in the U.S. And you know, it's interesting to see in Germany, for example, we have, of course, a male chancellor, but everybody behind him as female, and of course the foreign minister is, is a green woman, and a young woman, and now of course they hired Jennifer Morgan, the CEO of Greenpeace, to be the envoy for climate change. Talking about dramatic change, I think that change is here. Right? And it's, it's being it's being aggregated through everything that's happening. So thanks for the question, Lowell. Obviously a topic I could speak about for a long time. Uh, do we have more questions? I think we're We're winding up to the words of 45 minutes, right? Um, Stefan Inai, do you see nationally transcending state boundaries? You know, um, that's a good question. Like I said earlier, I think in Europe it's going to be important that we keep states, just like we have states in the US. But, you know, there are kind of boundaries, but not boundaries of that nature. And I think the model of Switzerland and also the US put together could be sort of an interesting model for the future where we have boundaries, we have languages, we have culture, we don't want to do away with all of those, but otherwise we're collaborating on defense, on security, on social security, on work, on education, on science. We're going to save trillions of euros if we learn how to collaborate better. That's probably also going to happen in, uh, in Africa as already is on the uh, on the way with the Union of African States. And yeah, it looks kind of optimistic, right? Next 20 years will bring all that change in an exponentially fast way. And I personally think we're heading to a world that will have a quasi world government parenthesis uh, in 20 years. Because that's how we're going to solve the really large, large issues. And that's how we're going to turn around climate change, which is completely doable. We just have to ener- energize and and collect our resources. Great book to read again is Kim Stanley Robinson, The Ministry for the Future, where he talks about the carbon coin, which is a global undertaking, of course, on financing the, the change to renewable energy and enforcing it as well. Very, very powerful book to read. He also talks a little bit about boundaries. Interestingly enough, his, his book takes place right down the street where I live in a place called the Hochstrasse here in Zurich. So, so I feel kind of like I am you know, already a neighbor of the Ministry for the Future. So check out his book and read some more about this. Huh? So let's have another question or two, and then we're going to wind down. And uh, Do we have more stuff on Twitter? Yes, we do. Well, Will is pointing a question. We're going to take this one first. So LinkedIn user. Isn't the dilemma of our world, which is increasingly in complexity, that we need more experts than ever? How can participation work in this context? You know, I think that's true, and it's also not true. I think. Uh, experts also tend to uh, be people who usually say that it can't be done, or who had too much experience saying that it can't be done. And, and uh, we need experts, but you know we also need people who have a broader view. You know, I've, I've said many times we need sort of a, a humanity future council, not just experts but visionaries, and people like in ancient Greece. You know, that could see beyond the immediate. And that, that is true that we need experts for, for scientific and technological things, and that's really hard to do for the standard population. For example, if we vote here in Switzerland on the future of nuclear energy, and that is kind of a tough vote for the average Swiss person, I would say. I mean, it takes hours of research to make up your mind. I agree with you on that, and that is one of the real basic drawbacks of direct democracy. People tend to vote on very simple assumptions like fear of foreigners or... Those kind of things, right? So there's a dilemma here, right? And I agree with you on that. But a council of the wise people, I've said many times, that would probably be a good idea. And the wise people, not just being experts, not just professors and academics, you know, but people who are philosophers. And and we kind of have that in so many ways in other spots all over the world, including the Millennium Project and of course the United Nations and so on. But we're going to need a lot more of this, and independent also mediators that we could definitely used now. Um, and I think we finally have a question here from Twitter. The <laughs> uh, same man, a guy who asked earlier, Willie Scholl isn't the lemo That's your question. now. Well, yes, I'm going to switch back to this. Thanks very much. You had double questions here now. Too many buttons to push, but I'm going to get a lot better with this when we do a h- another hundred of these. So, Linda Hoffman, do you believe in party structure concerning to democracy? In a party structure. Rudy from Belcom, Netherlands. Has designed a way of voting that is based on subjects. You know, I think the party structure is something that is, has given me a lot of grief, um, and because it kind of seems like you have to go through this whole process of of winning the party to back you, and then you're stuck in the party opinion. And that again is not such a big deal here in Switzerland because our parties are not funded in the same way, and they can't uh, they can't call on donors, you know, to influence them. It's it's not allowed here. Um, But in Germany, that has been very disconcerting. I think that it takes such a long time to get opinions across, voting on issues. That seems like a good idea, (laughs) sort of a more sort of a a basic democracy. And I think if we take the sort of ticket to the future, as I've outlined many other times before, it's really a combination of this idea of social democracy and social capitalism in a, a kind of direct way of applying it. And I think technology can also help with that clearly. So, yes, something I'd like to hear more about, Rudy van Belkom, uh, from the Netherlands, about what exactly this entails. So I'm going to take another question, and then it's time to tune out and, and chew on everything that was said before. So, Claudia Fried, uh, great to see you. Do you believe uh, this is a war between agricultural powers in these natural resources versus business? You mean the war of Ukraine and Russia? You know, I, th- I think that, that has been a long time in the making. And I really believe, of course, that you know, the danger of Putin is just now coming to full fruition and forefront of our mind. On the other hand, you know we've had not such a totally clever strategy, I think, as far as NATO expansion is concerned. And there, there are many, many, many different issues why this is cooked up and bowled up like this. It's really a, walled, a, a, a war of the mindset. Uh, and the world order is impacted. And, I mean, I can't believe that the stuff that we're hearing, of course, from Russia about what the world should look like. And yeah, that strikes me as utterly backwards. But at the same time, what did we do to bring this about? And I think we need to really think about what we want here and what we are willing to compromise on and, and what is the common future that we're going towards, too. But, hey, this is a complicated uh, topic. I'm not going to do a show on Ukraine and and Russia. I think this is a topic that is changing basically every 12 hours. But in many ways, yes, I think we're moving into society, just to answer your question, Claudia, into society that is going from atoms and and stuff uh, to bits and visions and ideas. Winston Churchill said, 1948, the empire of the future is the empire of the mind. And now, of course, the mind is technology and its data, and that is the empire of today. Right? Now what I would like to see is an empire of humanity, right? backed up by data, as I like to say, awesome humans on top of amazing technology. I think that is also the ticket for the future of democracy. Right? And I really believe that we need to work very hard at finding a future recipe for this and at collaboration and taking all available resources and having more discourses about it. Right? And so I want to thank you very much for being part of this. I know it's been a long discussion. Lots of information has been sh- shared. And um, the next GERT talks will be roughly in two weeks. I'm trying to figure out the schedule on the future of food, agriculture and eating and uh, basically technology's impact on our future there. Um, now we're going to show you the code for the, fee- for the free book, Technology versus Humanity. You can zip it here with your iPhone. Uh, I think there's limited to fifty, the first fifty, and you can download the ebook pretty much anywhere around the world and you're welcome of course to buy the ebook regardless and even by the printed button and the, the podcast version of it, which is now available of course at Audible and many other places. So I'd like you to consider subscribing to my newsletter gert.digital. okay that is basically you join another five thousand people who are getting uh, my email roughly every three to four weeks with the latest links and stuff that I, that I cook up. Don't forget about my film, The Good Future. Thegoodfuturefilm.com. I know it seems like an antidote right now when we talk about yeah, the present doesn't seem very good, but have hope. The future tends to be better than we think, right? Thegoodfuturefilm.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for your comments. If you have any more questions, just send them to me. Don't forget, go to GerTalks.com. That is where you're going to find out. That's my new microsite uh, showing the, late, the next show and also resources to the current show, including my slides and the video and everything else. So thanks very much. We're going to play a short trailer from the film, The Good Future. Thanks for tuning in and live long and prosper and keep up the hope. Every two weeks, I'll have a new show for you, audio and video, on what the future holds, what's important today, and how we're going to design what I call the good future. Visit gertalks.com for more details, schedules, and updates, and I hope to see you on the show.